Hello, everybody, and thanks for joining us once again for another episode of the Play Sheet podcast. And it's been a bit of a slow news week, hasn't it, Joe? Yeah, we've got a good show lined up today. We're going to talk about new head coaches and their impacts on the team. But there's been very little news to talk of in the last week. It's probably either this or talk about the criminal histories of a few players. So we're uh, sticking with a safer bet for sure. Keeping it clean this week. (laughs) Keeping it clean. Yeah. Yeah. In total then, there have been, or there will be, five head coaches that are starting new jobs in this NFL season and working with brand new teams. So the first one to kick us off is Joe Judge with the Giants. Now, he's come from the Patriots. He was previously the special teams coordinator for a long time with the Patriots and last season also became the wide receiver coach. He's been with the organization since 2012, risen through the ranks with Bill Belichick and been a key member of his staff ever since. But he's never had a head coach role and, of course, only picked up the wide receiver job with the Pats last season in which the Pats weren't especially productive or successful in that area. What do you think that means for the Giants then? They're obviously trying something new here and thinking outside the box. How do you think he'll fit in, Joe? I think it's a strange appointment. If you look at the history of the National Football League, I believe there's only been five special teams coaches who have graduated onto head coach roles. To be a special teams coach, you're a special breed of animal, really. And you can become quite compartmentalized, especially if you stay in that role for a while. Now, like you said, he's a disciple of Belichick, and I think that is possibly one of the reasons why he's got this job. There have now been 10 head coaches in the National Football League who fall under his coaching umbrella. If we look through that list, though, the success is few and far between. Just the first few names who are on that list, Al Groh, Romeo Grinnell, Eric Mangini, Josh McDaniels. You know, these are coaches who haven't had long and successful careers in the National Football League. If we look at the coaches who are kind of current coaches in the National Football League who come from the Belichick coaching tree, Bill O'Brien, who isn't exactly Mr. Popular at the Houston Texans right now, Matt Patricia, who's definitely on the hot seat this season with the Lions, and if he has another bad season, which he probably will, he'll probably go at the end of the season. And then Brian Flores, who didn't exactly have the best of times with the Dolphins in his first season in charge. And doesn't this smell a little bit like when we saw Sean McVay had great success with the Rams and all of a sudden anyone that ever had a coffee with Sean McVay was suddenly being touted for head coaching jobs everywhere? This is probably a combination of both of those things here because you've got a young coach and a young coach who's worked under Belichick. Two of the kind of fads of coaching in the National Football League are meeting head on here and the Giants have eaten it up. It's really hard to judge a guy before he's had a chance and, you know, he's not coached a single game as a head coach yet. But all the signs initially are pointing at this being a strange hire. And especially when they made this hire, they'd already passed on guys like Riviera who had been out there. And of course, he's going to be faced with plenty of adversity, especially if he wants to kind of mark his stamp on this team, because implementing any kind of new system is certainly not a quick process. And when we look at this really odd off-season, which we've already spoken about plenty of times, there's not a lot of time to get that together if you are looking to do anything different. And then on top of that, we've obviously got the opt-out of their left tackle, Nate Solder, which means that someone's going to have to stand in and start on the edge in front of Daniel Jones, who last season struggled to get to a 61.9 percentage completion. 
Yeah, uh, the Nate Solder sitting out through COVID-19, that is a big hit to this team. Now, on episode three a few weeks ago, I talked up the Giants, and I still believe that they're a side with potential, especially in the offense. But losing Nate Solder, the best offensive lineman they have, it's a huge blow to them. The bigger issue that the Giants have to face in the year ahead, though, a bigger issue than their line is the defense. The defense just flat out stunk last year. I'll throw a few stats at you here, Chaz. In 2019, there were nine games where they conceded over 30 points to the opposition, which is crazy. There were only two games where they conceded less than 20 points. One of those, they conceded 19 points, and the other was a game where they conceded three points, but that was against the Redskins, and we'll come on to the Redskins a bit later. But basically, their defence absolutely stunk for building up. They were 28th in takeaways, they were 28th in interceptions, 28th in fumble turnovers. They were a poor D. And, I mean, they didn't really address this too much in the draft. Okay, 36th pick overall, they took Xavier McKinney, so they got a safety in there. But they did lose a first-round cornerback in DeAndre Baker. You know, it's like whack-a-mole, they kind of solve one hole and another hole pops up. This is a D that really needs a lot of work, and any coach that comes in here was going to have a huge amount of work cut out for them to sort this D out. And I think as we go through this list of coaches on new teams, there are certain coaches where there'll be expectations to perform straight away. I think everybody will understand that with Joe Judge, it's certainly a transitional period. I mean, you'd have thought that nobody is going to have the expectation that he's going to come in and make immediate positive changes with everything we've just discussed. It is and it isn't, though, Chaz. There's some things, yeah, sure. It's transitional in the sense that the target for the end of the season isn't Super Bowl. But there are still some immediate goals that he's going to have to achieve in the next year. Goals like bringing Danny Dimes forward, bringing Daniel Jones forward, developing him as a quarterback. This is a player who the Giants reached up for in the draft the year before last. It's a player who they're still invested in. They are expecting him to move forward and move on. And that is something that Jude has to has to achieve. That's going to be so difficult, though, to achieve that when we've already established that the defence sucks. And to bring that up to speed, you can't give a man, surely, you know, a month before the season starts to put it all together. Well, look, it's maybe not as forlorn and hopeless as you make out. Aside from Nate Solder going, there are some good pieces that are on the Giants' offensive line. I spoke about Will Hernandez, so I think there's still a lot to come from that player. You've got Barkley, who's a generational talent in the backfield. It's an offense where you can do things. You've got players coming back from injury. You've got Golden Tate. You've got Darius Slayton. It's an average to good wide receiver room. So you don't have too many problems there. I think what Judge has done, which I think is a sensible thing, is being a special teams coach, he's surrounded himself with what he's perceived as a strong backroom. Now, do you know who he's appointed as his offensive coordinator? No, no ideas. Well, this will again tie into another team we're going to talk about later, Jason Garrett, the uh, ex-Cowboys head coach. 
he was with the Cowboys from 2011 to 2019, won coach of the year in 2016, won several divisional titles with the Cowboys, two free in playoffs. You know, Garrett has his detractors, and to be honest, his last couple of seasons in charge, I was one of them, but he's an experienced coach. And to get a relatively high-profile name like that in as offensive coordinator, I think it's quite a coup, and I think he'll definitely be a helpful, experienced voice to help judge through this. There's a couple of other questionable names in there. Like, I mean, he's brought Freddie Kitchens in as Titan coach. Oh, dear. <laughs> With a season that Kitchens had at the Browns, you could argue he's lucky to get a Titan coach role. But, you know, there's some big names in there. There's some big names, some experienced guys, guys who've been around the block. So he's not doing this alone. And he's going to have to lean on those coaches a fair amount. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think when people talk about new head coach positions, they often look at it in isolation, but you have to understand the whole team that's going to be working alongside him. And as you mentioned, there's some big names in there and some names that have had plenty of success. Normally, when you bring a head coach in, he's normally either a defense guy or an offense guy. He's worked his way up. And when you've been special teams, you're neither. So you need to really surround yourself with a lot of experienced guys who can call plays for you on both sides. And that's basically what he's done here. So yeah, he's going to have to lean on his team a lot. Bringing in a guy like this from the Patriots, he'll be as much about bringing in a winning mentality as much as anything else. The problem is lots of teams have tried to do this over the last 10, 15 years. And the success rate, like I said, of Belichick coaching tree hires isn't great. Maybe he'll buck the trend. But stats say that he probably won't. Yeah. I mean, I think the the Giants have tried something new here. You've mentioned that they've bought into the hype. That's to be seen. From my point of view, I think you've got to at least give the man a bit of a chance before you make a judgment. This is a bit of a weird season, as we've all said. Every season's a bit of a weird season. It never goes how you expect. But this is a season where a new head coach is not going to have the opportunity to get players learning and working together as quickly as you would have in a normal season and I think there's got to be some form of leniency there especially for someone who's coming from a special teams position into a head coaching position well yeah a logical man might say that jazz but um, sometimes general managers and the kind of powers that be in teams don't always think that way I'll put it this way I wouldn't want to be a first year head coach in the circumstances that we have right now no preseason games an extremely limited preseason camp, which isn't really even a proper camp at all. Coaches aren't going to have time to make their marks. So you're just basically throwing the chips out and seeing how LA. And yep, you might get some GMs who understand that and are happy to put this one down to experience, but most probably won't. So it's unfortunate, but yeah, but it's a situation he's got, it's a hand he's got, and hey, he's still got a crack at it. So he's going to have to make the best of it. And so then I suppose from one newbie head coach to one with plenty of experience in Mike McCarthy, who now finds himself at the Cowboys. Jason Garrett has helped take the Cowboys to the dizzying heights of mediocrity of late. And they finally had the nails to move on from him and have instead appointed Mike McCarthy. Now, obviously, as a Green Bay fan, I'm very familiar with, with Mike and he did get us a ring. But in his final two seasons at Green Bay, you know, the Packers went a combined 11-16-1. And then the very year after he left, we jumped to a 13-3 record and a number two seat with Matt LaFleur. So there are question marks around him joining. That being said, I suppose what the Cowboys are potentially thinking 
are that they're maybe trying to replicate the kind of what the Chiefs have done with the hiring of Andy Reid. You know, Reid was sort of quite stale in Philadelphia towards the end of his stay there, but he had an excellent track record and he arrived at Kansas City and turned them into a winning record team in his first season. So maybe there's a feeling that Mike can do the same. What are your thoughts? I think you've wrapped it up quite well there, Chaz. You sound like a genius when you're talking about Green Bay things. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, yeah, the Cowboys have played a relatively safe hand by picking up Mike McCarthy. Like you say, he's a proven winner. He has a ring. And, you know, Green Bay have been a good side over the last 10 years. Yes, the last couple of seasons, not so much. But as you know, and perhaps a lot of listeners will know as well, there are a lot of behind the scenes things going on there with Aaron Rodgers and the relationship between him and Mike McCarthy. I mean, you can put that down to bad coaching, but if you have bad relationships with your players, uh, that's kind of on you as well. But sometimes you get divas, sometimes you get players who just don't click with you, and that's something you have to deal with. And when it's your quarterback, that's been a problem that he's been dealing with the last few seasons. Yeah, I think the Cowboys think that, okay, he had two bad seasons toward the end he got a bit stale there with Green Bay but moving him to Dallas is going to reignite his passion and you know I likened it to the move that the Chiefs made for Andy Reid the one thing I would say is I I don't think that McCarthy is quite the innovator that Reid is but he has recently said that he wants to go all in on analytics for his next gig and he's dreamt up this team of like 14 you know data specialists that he wants brought in he's talked extensively about how he wants to run a fast modern offense with plenty of play action run pass options and pre-snap motion which is exactly what he didn't do enough of in Green Bay for our listeners who aren't particularly familiar with that why don't you talk us through what that kind of play entails and uh, what your thoughts are about him potentially applying more of that in Dallas Okay, sure. So RPOs, the run play option. There's a lot of confusion over what this type of play is. Some people kind of get it mixed up with a play action. It's not quite the same, so let's break it down. A play action pass is basically where a quarterback fakes giving the ball to the running back. So the defense thinks that there's a run play coming. The running back doesn't actually take the ball. The quarterback steps back and then with the defense rushing on for a run, it opens up space in the backfield and the quarterback goes over the linebackers often, and there's often a kind of deep pass that you can get from that. It's not always a deep pass, but that is kind of typically what it opens up. One RPO is, is the quarterback basically has the option to hand the ball off, so it could still be a run play, whereas a play-action pass is always going to be a pass. He has a, the option to do that. He has the option to pass the ball, or he has the option to carry the ball himself. So you've got three potential outcomes of what can happen there. What kind of makes it so hard to do is that there are so many pieces that have to come together at the same time for this to work. The offensive line basically starts off behaving like this is a run play. So rather than just protecting the passer, they'll be pushing forward. But if the offensive line are more than a yard in front of the line of scrimmage at the point the quarterback throws a pass, then there's ineligible players downfield and it's a penalty. So the speed and the orchestration that you have to have to make this all work, every single man on that field has to basically be aware of what's happening and doing his job and thinking on their feet at the same time. It's an orchestra of a play and it's very, very easy to get wrong if you've got players who don't know what they're doing and players who aren't drilled well. It's the new way that things are going. 
but there's plenty of players who are in the league who aren't really capable of playing in teams that run RPOs. As you've said there, it's something that takes a lot of drilling, a lot of practice, a lot of precision. Again, it just feels like such a risky move for a season where, or a preseason rather, where Mike McCarthy is just not going to have that much time to pull that all together. Yeah, there's an ignorant view to take of it really where people might look at it and think that it's all down to the quarterback and it's just the quarterback making the quick choices. It's the quarterback thinking, shall I keep the ball? Shall I throw the ball? Shall I let the running back run with the ball? It's not that. The wide receivers have to adjust quickly. Are they going to be running their routes or have they got to come back and block for the run? Like I said, the offensive line has a very hard task. There's a lot of challenge there in terms of are they run blocking, are they pass blocking, whereabouts should they be? Every single player has to think about their role and think about what they're doing. And like you say, when you don't have enough time to drill that, it's got penalties written all over it and embarrassment really because if you start to try to run RPOs and you make a mess of it, it's just not a good look at all. Yeah. Now there were claims when in the last couple of seasons at Green Bay that he kind of wasted the talent of Aaron Rodgers. I don't think anyone's going to accuse Mike of doing the same with Dak Prescott. So actually maybe the appointment's not such a bad one. If he can find a way of unlocking that Dallas offense which have a lot of great pieces in it now without having to rely too heavily on Dak then he could be the coach for them right? He's been waxing lyrical about Dak Prescott over the last few days. I, I've seen that, but I'm not buying it. Surely that's just new head coach passer. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's new head coach Bill. I don't particularly believe in myself. He would have been very interesting if Mike McCarthy was there last year when Randall Cobb was there as well. Because, I mean, he really got the best out of Cobb in the years that Cobb was in Green Bay. But the three wide receivers that he's got there, I don't think he'd get rid of any of them. I think that he's going to have a lot of fun writing up plays for those guys. Although I think... Probably the most important thing to consider with the Cowboys is surely the defense. I mean, every single year it promises to be something and always ends up being nothing. I think that's the thing that McCarthy's really going to have to fix if he wants to turn that Dallas team into a winning team. And, you know, he built a very successful defense when he was at Green Bay. Do you think it's something that he'll be able to replicate at the Cowboys? I think he's going to have to start getting players to play what they're being paid for. I mean, Demarcus Lawrence is one of the highest paid defensive ends in the league and he hasn't played like it over the last season and a half. He's paid a disgusting amount of money, really. And he's just not in that elite tier, which his contract suggests that he should be. But they have got some great pieces in there. Like I'm a huge fan of uh, Leighton Van Der Esch. He was kind of sneaky. He should have been in the conversation for Defensive Rookie of the Year a couple of seasons ago. I thought he was very, very good in his rookie season. Solid last year. If he stays healthy, I think he's one of the top linebackers in the league. To me, I think we already know that Dallas have a really good offense. It works well. It's not particularly broken. I don't think it's going to be a really big job to do too much work on that. I think where McCarthy's got his work cut out is going to be in fixing that defense. Yeah, and look, If he goes down the path of what he's saying he's going to go down with RPOs, with pre-snap motions, with those kind of tools, I'll be honest, I don't think that Dak is a quarterback who is capable of pulling them off the same way that Lamar Jackson, for example, has pulled off a couple of those things in the last year for the Ravens. Lamar Jackson with pre-snap motions, the Ravens made it an art form last year. You know, maybe I'm going to look silly in a few months' time and maybe he'll play amazing, but... I have question marks over Dak. 
like you say, the D has never clicked for a full season. If a D does click, though, they're in a weak division for the moment. While the Giants and Redskins are still in rebuild mode, while the Eagles have been disappointing and, you know, they didn't have a great draft either, this is probably the easiest division in the NFC. They should be blasting it. And from what you say there, this part of the team being good or not so good, perhaps some of it has been artificially inflated by the weakness of opposition that they've played six times a season over the last couple of seasons. Okay, so moving on from the Cowboys then and on to Washington, Washington football team to be precise. We're going to talk about Ron Riviera. I love that name. I mean, it's such a porn star's name, isn't it? Ron Riviera. Mate, I think his nickname is even better though, Riverboat Ron. (laughs) Riverboat Ron. I mean, what a fantastic name. Absolutely fantastic. And it's kind of interesting, we didn't say this at the start, but like you mentioned, there are five teams who are playing with new head coaches. Three of them are in the NFC East. So, so much movement going on in that division. Yeah. So, Ron was cut loose from the Panthers after his ninth season there. Overall, he had a winning record with them and even had a Super Bowl appearance. But the last couple of seasons were deemed not to be good enough, and rightly so. And he was let go before Washington swooped in and scooped him up. So why don't you give us a bit of background around Riverboat Ron? He's faced a lot of obstacles over the last couple of years, really, because he built a great team with the Panthers. Like you said, he took them to Super Bowl back in 2015, I believe it was. He built a good team there. He did some great work. I think that, you know, something that was happening in the background over the last couple of years is that you had David Tepper come in as a new owner. And although, you know, every owner who comes in initially kind of gives support for the incumbent coach, ultimately, when you come in, you want to do things your own way. You want to build almost from fresh. And I think that with the Panthers building their new facility, I think that Tepper wanted to make his own mark and bring in a new front office, bring in a new head coach. And I think that Riviera kind of knew that was going on in the background. And I think his position has been almost untenable, really, over the last 18 months to two years. It was last season where he went, but I think it's kind of been on the cards. And it's part of a new owner. And I'm not necessarily saying that David Tepper was wrong to do this, because, I mean, it's his team. He has the right to do this. But I think that a lot of people have a lot of respect for Riviera. And there's been some other things, like obviously Cam Newton being injured, losing your first string quarterback. There's been a lot of things that have been going on really that have made his job more of a challenge than perhaps some other coaches have faced. Yeah. So they were his difficulties with the Panthers. What do you think he has to bring to Washington football team then? Yeah, sure. So one of the things with Washington football team... Can I just say, it still feels completely ridiculous saying that. Every time I say it, it just sounds bizarre yeah I, um like Chaz spends about four hours doing the edits and sound tweaks each week he'll probably be doing eight this week because the amount of times i say redskins i'm leaving them in there it's too much effort <laughs> i'm probably still gonna say redskins because it feels unnatural to say washington football team but <laughs> look washington football team there are still rumors and there's rumors swirling around there that i'm sure lots of people have heard that there have been very untoward things going on with the culture of that team Rumours about Gruden, players, what they were getting up to, some very unsavoury things. The culture, it would seem, at Washington is rotten, from the owner all the way down. So in that sense, I think that Riviera is a great coach to get in because of the type of man he is. 
Let's look at his background, where he comes from. Riviera was drafted by the Bears in 84 as a linebacker. He was in the 85 Bears team, which is still regarded as one of the best defensive teams in the history of a sport. He's a smash mouth, no-nonsense, straight up, work hard, play hard, do things the right way kind of guy. And if any of those coaches who we're going to talk about were going to be brought in, he'd be the man who you'd want, really, to straighten a team out and bring in the right kind of culture that a football team should have and not, you know, these really strange and questionable things that we have heard have been going on. So in terms of, of making that football team have the right kind of ethics, Riviera's a great shout. Yeah, and I mean, they're a team that they're going to have a new name, a new logo. It sounds like, you know, from what you're saying, here's a coach that can come in and instill a brand new culture into the club. Is there the possibility here that he could be the guy that turns it around and starts to create some form of legacy or dynasty for Washington? I would say to caveat things, I think of every coach we're going to talk about here, Riviera is a guy who needs the longest because I think that the Redskins are the team who are the furthest gone in terms of just playing the game the wrong way. I mentioned how the Giants were trash on defense, but okay on the other side of the ball. The Redskins were trash on both sides. And they were really, really trash. Last season, they finished 3-13, and 13, and I'm not really sure how they got that free. They were absolute bottom of the league in passing yards. 2,812 passing yards for the season. That is poor for 16 games. They only had nine rushing touchdowns across the whole year. They were abysmal. They failed to score 10 points in five of their games. They were 27th in terms of points conceded. They placed 30th in terms of conceded pass touchdowns. They were 31st in rush yards conceded. They were a terrible team, both sides of the ball. I think the only thing that you can say they did all right, they were the fourth best team in terms of conceding penalties, which, considering what I just said about their culture, shocked me. But look, they have a lot of issues, and this isn't going to be fixed in one season. It's not going to be fixed in two seasons. There's so much work, so many positions that have to be fixed here. Dwayne Haskins, at best, is not National Football League ready, but it's a question of if he will ever be ready for the National Football League or if he's a bust. And at the minute, things are pointing to him being a bust because he just looks so far away from being ready. Case Keenum, you know, he's a player that I've got a lot of love for in terms of what he did with Minnesota, but he took a massive step back there. And look, people talk about Terry McLaurin as a bright spot, but... One wide receiver who made some big chunk plays, it's just not enough. There's so many holes that are in this team that, to answer your question, Chaz, this team is, I'd probably say, three or four years off challenging for playoffs, let alone forming some kind of dynasty. But look, we probably haven't heard the last of the issues that are going on with that team. I feel a little bit like things were getting out of hand in terms of the renaming, and it's almost like the league has done its best to kind of silence the rumours. There are a whole lot of things that were happening in the Washington Post in terms of what Dan Snyder was up to, Jay Gruden, uh, what certain players were up to. We probably haven't heard the last of it, and this will probably come out again at some point. And when it does, it could really be ugly again. So this is a team that I'm saying that they need to kind of rebuild here. If some of the rumours are true, you could potentially have draft picks taken away as well. So this is a team that are going to have a real rough couple of years ahead of them. Riviera, I think he's the right guy to be captain of a ship through this because he's got the right mentality, the right ethical background. He's always seemed a good, straightforward, upstanding guy. And they're going to really need someone like that over the next few years. 
Right, so from one coach who has left the Panthers to another that has joined, let's talk about Matt Rule, another name which I love. <laughs> I don't know why. I think it just reminds me of Ja Rule. The way it's spelled... It almost... Don't tell me it's Ja Rule's cousin. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's spelled like it's like in a map from a Lord of the Rings or something with a H in there. <laughs> yeah, it's bonkers. Do you know what? It's really funny that I think you talked about Ron Riviera coming from that... Bears team and and being that kind of hard-nosed coach because I think Matt Rule's got a bit of a reputation for being a bit old school in his approach and being a big fan of being physical in a way to control the football game. He likes to run a lot and you know when you've got Christian McCaffrey on your team that can only be a good thing. The only other thing I know about Matt Rule is that he has already held a hot dog eating contest as part of a team bonding exercise. I think he pitted the defensive O-line against the offensive O-line and basically said whoever won could show up to training late the next day. (laughs) (laughs) I quite like that. I hadn't heard that, but very good. I think it happened yesterday or something like that. It is really recently that he's done it. Yeah, but hey, look, you know, he's come in. He's a no-nonsense guy. He said, come on, fellas, we're going to sit down. We're going to bond. We're going to have a hot dog eating contest and then we're going to get to work. Very good. Very good. I like it. I'm a fan of that. (laughs) I thought you might be. Okay, so what I've heard of Matt Rulvo and what I'm aware about is he's a coach who seems to be an expert in turning teams around. He's only coached two college teams as a head coach, but what he's done with them is nothing short of remarkable, really. His first head coach position was with Temple, and he joined Temple in 2013. His first season in charge, Temple were 2-10, and tied for ninth in the conference, and they were the whipping boys. By 2015, they were 10-4, they were first in the conference. 2016, they were 10-3 and they won the conference title. In three, four short years, he turned Temple around from an extremely poor team to a very, very strong outfit. Then to prove that it wasn't a fluke, he then moved over to the Baylor Bears. Baylor Bears, first season in charge, 2017, they finished 1-11. Sound familiar? By 2019, they were 11-3, second in the conference. He seems to definitely have the art of turning around a losing team down to a T. And, you know, the Panthers were poor last year. There's no getting away with that. Obviously, I'm kind of trying to shift that blame away from Riviera. You had the issue of Cam Newton basically just having this bad shoulder and and just not being the player that he was. There were other things going on with that team. But this wasn't a great team. And I think that the Panthers' ownership are hoping that he can do the same thing that he's done with Temple and the Baylor Bears and basically just turn that team around. It would be great to see happen, I think. He seems like quite an exciting prospect. The Panthers obviously switched to a 3-4 base defense last season. Almost seemed like a bit of a desperation play to try and keep his seat. Do you think they'll switch back now? I mean, it wasn't very successful. It didn't really work for them. It did and it didn't. It achieved some things almost too well at the expense of other things. So Riviera had played the 4-3 basically the whole time that I'd been there. They switched to a 3-4 base set and then they got the second most sacks in the league. From a pass rushing point of view, they were exceptionally good. And so it was obviously playing to the strengths of their front seven. But obviously corners and safeties, they just were not performing at the level they should be. And so they were still losing games despite racking up all these sacks. Matt Rule has already come out and said that he's going to switch back to a 4-3. Switching to a 4-3, I'm not sure if this is necessarily the right thing to do and if this is addressing the problem the right way. 
because switching to the 3-4 obviously was right for half of that team. The problem, it seems, is not really the front seven, it's the secondary. Maybe if I was coming in as a head coach, rather than making another drastic change and changing back, I'd have looked at more what I could do with a secondary and seen if I could replicate the success with a 3-4 again, but then just fix the pass defence. What's your view on it? Do you think that he's right to switch to the 4-3 or would you have left it? Joe, I would never be given a head coach position. (laughs) I think we'll leave that one there. I'll tell you what, let's move on to something that certainly one of us knows about here. I'm going to let you take the lead on this because Kevin Stefanski, who has moved to the Browns, obviously come from the Vikings. You'll know certainly a lot more about him than me. But from what I saw, the moment that he took over, the Vikings seemed to be performing really well in terms of the yardage that they made, in terms of the offensive plays that they run. Personally, I know a lot of people will say, well, all he did was run the ball, run the ball. But I actually think that he made Cousins look like a better quarterback behind his plays. He gave him that breathing space and that room to be able to get his confidence back. And I think when you're going to the Browns and you're looking at a quarterback like Baker Mayfield, that could be absolutely essential. What are your thoughts around Kevin Stefanski and his role in the Browns now? Yeah, so Stefanski has a very auspicious way of playing football. He obviously started off at the Vikings as a quarterback coach, moved on to offensive coordinator, and the play style that he brought in was what you could maybe deem an old-fashioned way of playing the game, where his offensive game is based on the run and play-action passing. He runs a lot of 12 personnel and 22 personnel packages, that's, you know, with one running back and two tight ends, or two running backs and two tight ends, often playing only two wide receivers. So the way that he coaches, the way that he likes to run the offense, it's different to what a lot of teams are doing out there. And when that works, it's great. When it's not working so well, it's very easy for fans and pundits to turn around and say, oh, well, it's because they're playing that way. They're playing an outdated way or they're playing the wrong way. They're not using the wide receivers they've got, etc., etc. So there's quite a lot on the line here because it's going to be very visible the play style that he's going to bring. And it's going to be very easy for people to criticise if it doesn't start working. I think with the personnel that he has at the Browns, I think that Stefanski is quite a good fit. We talked quite a while ago now about David Njoko and him wanting to leave and him not being happy that the Browns signed Austin Hooper. He is going to be on the pitch a lot. Like I said, Stefanski will play a lot of 12 personnel and 22 personnel looks. Austin Hooper and Najoka are going to line up next to each other a lot of the time this season. And I think that that could be a very, very interesting, dangerous look. When you've got those two lined up next to each other, you've got ODB and Landry as your two wideouts. I mean, that is going to be dangerous. And when teams are going to be focused on the run because he's going to be stuffing Nick Chubb down the middle a lot more than probably what Chubb's been doing over the last few seasons, you could potentially be seeing a lot of situations where you're going to have Landry and ODB one-on-one with cornerbacks because safety's a load in the box. And I think that if Stefanski's plans come off, it could really invigorate the Browns' offense. I couldn't agree more. I think that if he was to move to any team in the NFL, you'd almost say that the Browns, in terms of the people that they have on the field, is almost tailor-made for Stefanski's style of play. And as someone who is very heavily invested in the Browns from a fantasy perspective, I am really, really hoping he succeeds. 
it's like you say, I think the Browns are almost a tailor-made team for what Stefanski wants to do here. I think that the things that kind of suit a Stefanski team, you don't need depth in wide receivers. You just need a couple of good wide receivers. With the Vikings, he was just running, feeling, and digs. And it didn't matter that there was no depth behind that because the only wide receivers who were on the field for the majority of players were just those two players. So, you know, with there not being that much depth behind ODB and Landry doesn't really matter because you're going to have two tight ends on the field. And what he's got there are two very good tight ends. He's got Hooper, who we've hyped up a fair amount on this show before, and Najoku as a number two tight end who can do it all to a certain extent because most teams have their pass-catching tight end and their blocking tight end. They've got two pass-catching tight ends there who I think are going to have a lot of fun. And Najoku, I think that he could go to a different team and be a tight end one at a different team and not have as much action that he will have this season as the nominal tight end two with the Browns. Yeah, absolutely. So there you have it. There's five new coaches starting with five new teams and not a lot of time to get everything together. So if you didn't think this season was going to be interesting enough, I think there's certainly some interesting things to watch out for. How many of those coaches do you think will still have jobs with those teams in two years' time? That is such a good question. Right, who am I going to back from this list? I think four of the five. So who do you think won't have a job? I just think I'm not convinced on Joe Judge. I mean, like you said, it's very harsh to judge because he's never had a previous head coach role. But I think that might be the thing that just undoes him. I'm not sure if he can necessarily pull that off with a team like the Giants. It's such a tough ask for me. I think that'll probably be the one. He's got the hardest task there. And just looking at the history of Belichick coaching tree coaches, the majority of them only last for a season or two. So if this reverts to form, then I think that he's got the hardest ask. And it's it's a team where, like I say, their goal is not the Super Bowl, but he's got to make a lot of things happen in the next couple of years. And I think the back office there just hasn't been that supportive of coaches. So yeah, definitely him. But I mean, like, you know, Anyone who's the coach of the Cowboys is always going to have a world of pressure on their shoulders. Garrett did well to last eight years there. And I mean, Jerry Jones is a patient enough guy. But these are the Cowboys. You're almost going into a window now where they're really going to have to start to win things with contracts kind of building up. If Dak Prescott takes backward steps and, you know, you get an injury to someone like Zeke, they could have a real bad time. So... Mike McCarthy, I would say, potentially is the next coach who I say will have the biggest problems after Judge. There you go. So next week, Charles is going to be on holiday, so I will be presenting the show by myself. We're going to be doing a few mailbag things and dealing with a few listener questions. So I look forward to seeing you next week. Chaz looks forward to his holiday. We'll see you then. (laughs) See you then.